Hi there, and can I say right off the cuff that what an absolute treat it is to be doing this PageCast because talking to authors, in my view, is absolutely the best thing ever. So I'm really, really thrilled. So I'm Nancy Richards. I'm a journalist. I'm a book lover. I'm the founder of something called Woman's Own and the Women's Library in Cape Town. I'm very, very honoured to be in conversation with Catherine J. Chen. Her latest book is called simply Joan, as in Joan of Arc, and what a book and what a woman. And I have to tell you, Catherine, it brought back a flood of memories from my history school books and I thought to myself if only I had had this book then it would have been much more exciting much more fun and much more visual but before we even go there let me tell you a little bit more about Catherine the lovely Catherine Joan is her latest book but earlier in 2018 she wrote a book called Mary B which is a story of the overlooked middle sister in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice so you don't get more different than that. So Catherine is a Princeton graduate where she was much awarded and not least for her poetry. She got her MFA, her Master of Fine Arts at Boston University where she went on to become a senior teaching fellow. Later she interned at the New Yorker in the cartoons department. She served as a reader at the Paris Review and her work has been published quite widely, included in the history historical fiction anthology, Stories from the Suffragette City. She's also, interestingly, a die-hard fan of Agatha Christie, Jane Austen, and the late Hilary Mantel. And on characters, for those of you who don't know, who maybe you skipped this bit in your history books, Joan of Arc, she was St. Joan, in fact, St. Joan, or the Maid of Orleans. She's the patron saint of France and claimed, so I read, by an icon as by French nationalists, fascists, communists, and even feminists. And she was born circa 1412. She was known as, and I'm quoting here, the short-haired, armor-plated, sword-wielding, horse-riding, saint-voice-hearing to victory-leading French heroine of the Hundred Years' War, who the church finally deemed as a heretic and she was burned at the stake. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler, but I think we all kind of know where it all ended um, at the time she was about 19, but she was posthumously declared innocent in 1456. So, my goodness me, Catherine, you certainly took on one hell of a story there, if I can say. What I really want to know a little bit about is your writing. I was read with fascination that your writers that you admire are Jane Austen, Agatha Christie, and the late Hilary Mantel. Can you tell me why? What about their writing appealed to you? Hi, Nancy. I'm so glad to be talking with you and on the show. Mm. I suppose if we were to focus on um, particularly the writing of, of the late Hilary Mantel, I would say that um, the work Wolf Hall probably had the greatest impact on me, especially writing in the field of historical fiction. And it just taught me so many things. It taught me about how to make history immediate, um, how to make storytelling both visceral and, and real, and how to reel characters from centuries past and to realize that these characters, um, not only does one read their biographies, and but that they also were human. They were capable of weeping, of being ill, of having colds, of complaining, of conniving, and all these things. When I read Wolf Hall for the first time, it really had a profound impact on me in terms of influencing both my style and my approach to these characters, how to make them real for a particularly a, con a contemporary audience, a 21st century audience. Yeah. Gosh, I really hear that, you know, but I'm thinking whilst that's very exciting to be able to literally breathe life into the bones, into the spectre of these historical characters, also a little bit daunting because certainly in the case of Joan, Joan of Arc, 
so many books. I had a quick Google. So many books have been written about her. So many school books, so much history. Um, people have done theses on her. Did you not feel, yo, can I really go there too? Well, I think, I think the short answer is, uh, I didn't feel too daunted. Not really, because I think the circumstances in which one is writing didn't permit me to feel daunted. Perhaps if I had been more comfortable or had a more affluent lifestyle, I would have felt more scared. But I didn't have the opportunity to, to overthink. And if, um, if we may veer into the more personal, I was actually unemployed at the time when the idea to write about Joan um, first occurred to me. So I had no income, no health insurance, um, nothing beyond some savings with which I had to use to live, to do what I wanted to do, which was to write. There were days when I spent all of my time researching and I gave myself the objective of reading at least 100 pages of history a day. I, I just wanted to try to give my best effort at absorbing everything I could. And I didn't even promise to myself that I would write a book about Joan of Arc at the time. But I realized I also didn't have a lot of time. I didn't have an indefinite period of, of time to work on this book. And one has to consider all the usual things a roof over one's head, you know, the ba basic necessities of life. And, and so I guess to answer your question, I had no chance to be daunted because I had somehow to put the blinders on and just concentrate on, on the task I'd set for myself. I think I finished the first draft in about half a year. And then later I got sick. I was diagnosed with cancer in early 2019, found myself unemployed yet again. And this time I rewrote the book from scratch and doing so meant beginning all over again. And so I, I say that I didn't have a lot of time, but I think in retrospect, time was one of the most important ingredients in the book. Personal illness stretched out the time and illness changed the book as well. Yeah, that is an incredible journey. I mean, I wanted to facetiously say that we should all be unemployed so that we can take time out to write such a book. But that, as I say, that would be very, very facetious given the, the rest of the story, given the fact that you were, um, given the fact that you were ill, which in some ways feels almost like it been, might have been motivating. So you weren't daunted by the magnitude of what you'd taken on, but you were if I can say perhaps driven, and I wonder where that drive came from. But just before you go to that question, why Joan of Arc? Was there something that triggered Joan of Arc for you? I, I like what someone once told me. Um, he said that um, with, with almost all novels, they're written by your past selves. And so I think um, the conditions of my life at the time prompted me to take on someone with Joan's um, heroism and courage and and temperament, if you will. And it, it also happened very organically, I have to say, even more so than with, with Mary Bennett. I was simply looking over my bookshelves one day and I, and I came across a biography of Joan of Arc that I purchased actually years and years ago at a local bookstore. And it must have been at least two or three years. And it was one of those purchases where you, you buy a book and you think it's very pretty in the store and then you forget to read it as soon as you get home. And so it had this lovely gold foil cover, I remember, and I knew Joan of Arc by name and reputation only. And I remember this change took place within me um, as soon as I was ready to write about a new person. And as I mentioned, I made no promises to myself. I just thought if I started this journey of research, if I went down this road and I 
felt that I could venture to write about her, then I would. But if I didn't feel comfortable doing so, then I wouldn't. And I think I already sensed that it would be a, a challenge, a, a really tall order, and that having a lot of material um, to research um, can work both ways. It can give you a chance to really delve into someone's life, but it can also be an opportunity to read and read and read and procrastinate and put off actual writing. And second, if I may, I was listening some time ago to um, an old interview with um, the writer Peter Ackroyd, and he said in an interview something that also really resonated with me. It was an interview with um, the radio show Desert Island Discs, and he said, I am comfortable in the company of those whom I admire. I would put it no higher than that in terms of, you know, picking his subjects for writing about history. And I would say that that is true for me, for, for Joan as well. Yes. What, what, what a, a wonderfully wise sentiment. And I'm just thinking if you came to admire her or if you admired her from the get-go, if there was something about her that appealed to you or if your admiration for her grew, and I feel possibly it was the latter because my admiration for her certainly grew as the book developed, as she developed. But something you said there that when you bought that secondhand book, it was in a pretty gold foil cover. I mean, all the pictures that we have of her, you know, straight back sitting on top of this white horse with its fleur de flag flying, all very beautiful and ethereal and, and saintly. Yet you have painted a completely different picture of her. She is maybe some of those things, but she's also very physical, very strong, very moral, very powerful for all her youth. Did you consciously think to yourself, I'm going to breathe a different sort of life into this woman? Did, was that a conscious thing? Yes. I, the challenge that I gave myself and the challenge that I knew I had to surmount to make this um, even remotely a viable work was to wonder from a fictional perspective, not, not as a historian, because I would never call myself a historian, but as a person who writes fiction, how, how can you present Joan in a fresh way? How can you present a version of her that is, that is deeply personal, that, that feels human to, to the contemporary reader? And, and what are other ways that you can ex explore certain themes in her life, such as, such as faith? How do you explain the, the long stretch? And I use the word long comparatively since she only lived until 19 of her youth beyond what is presented in, in the retrial that took place I think about over two decades after her death and and how does someone like Joan really come into being is it is it really such a simple story of, of point a to point b of simply one receives visions and then goes off virtually on one's own to seek an audience and and then this audience eventually is with the highest echelons of the French aristocracy and of course, that wasn't unheard of. There were female prophets before Joan. But, but one question I had to really ask myself is, why does Joan of Arc's name endure and have the reach that it does, uh, a reach that I think most would agree um, has uh, feels of truly global proportion as a global icon? She's a national icon and a religious icon, but most people around the world, I think, do know of her. And, and how do you contrast this with someone like Marie Robin, who was also a French prophet and appeared before Joan did, uh, but who simply doesn't have that name recognition today? And, and why is this? Mm. And why does Joan of Arc both stand apart and, I believe, above these, these other female prophets? 
Yes, I, I'm enduring, as you say, and there's a wonderful line towards the end of the book where she thinks, I have become more than just myself. I am here in this cage, but I have another body, which is unseen. I am the battle cry, the ro roar of spears, pikes and poleaxes rattling. I am the sound of a hundred horses thundering down a hill and the wind that ripples through banners, the swing of a catapult, the deafening blast, an explosion of cannonry. Every soldier, young and old, who goes to war shall think of me and carry me in his soul. I have to tell you, I wept. You've got some very powerful words here, Catherine. You mentioned there earlier that you don't call yourself an historian. Nonetheless, I think you said that you were at one point reading 100 pages a day. And there was indeed a massive, I mean, not 100 years worth, but, well, many hundreds of years worth, but a massive amount of material. Can I just ask very prosaically, where did you find your research? Was it online? Did you go to libraries with ancient books? How did it... How did you get it? Oh, I wish it was that romantic. I wish I could say that I had I had sat in, in the place where she had died and that I had visited France and all these things. But no, it was it was very mundane. It was a book written on a on a shoestring budget, as one might say. Um, and and I relied mostly on on books because um, online sources do do vary. And I, I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I'm very grateful for the Internet. Um, but I relied mostly on, uh, you know, the transcriptions of the trial of Joan of Arc, particularly the, the work uh, translated um, by Professor Daniel Hobbins, which was published by the Harvard University Press. Also, I, I relied on Regine Pernoud's work, her work on Joan of Arc, particularly the, the retrial of Joan of Arc. And that was a very helpful work. Um, it recounted all the witness statements from when her name was eventually redeemed about 25 years after her death. And there were also all these biographies, um, the biography written by Helen Castor, which has enjoyed a, a great deal of success. And as for fictional renditions, I read Mark Twain's novel of Joan of Arc, and I have to admit, I didn't think that much about of it. I, I didn't, he considered it his greatest work, but I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with him that it was his greatest work. And of course, I read Bernard Shaw's um, St. Joan. As for other research, you know, that was in, in the Hundred Years' War. I read history books on, on that time and also a separate books on, um, you know, the, the daily lives of, of people, of, of, you know, of cities and, and villages and, and castle life and and delved into probably a lot more research than was needed. One thing that I found was that, um, I found that if I read too much, if I spent too long reading, it, it, it's a strange thing. It would inve inevitably take away from, from the originality of the, of the fictional work itself, because, because then what happens is that you're really abiding by a sort of fixed timeline, and you're scrambling to wear both your historian cap and your novelist cap, and that's, and that's precisely what happened with, with the first draft of the novel I wrote, which I wouldn't hesitate to, to call something of a failure. And if that version were published, I highly doubt I'd be talking to you now, Nancy. Well, what a, what a literary journey. What a journey of work it's been. And I'm thinking, you know, you should write all this down. It's almost like a movie in itself as to how you tracked, you know, the whole story and with all the in, 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 information that you sort of included in it. But let's just leave aside everybody else's Jones. I think it was wonderful. You showed great faith in, in faithfully reading everybody else's Jones. But let's get to your own Joan. 
you mentioned somewhere earlier there about, you know, how did she come into being? And it seems to me that it, it's a miracle that she came into being because she had such an unbelievably awful start. She had this dreadful father, uh, a, you know, a really troubling father, uh, what we would call these days abusive. You know, she would have reported him to some or other, you know, child line. It, it's just dreadful. And the fact that she survived that, can you just spend a little bit of time with the dreadful father? To what extent did you create him? Or to what extent had you read that such a monster of a man existed? The inspiration for the father character um, came from uh, when I was reading transcriptions of her trial. There's a relatively well-known story, I think, that her father had um, dreams of Joan being a camp follower of an army, and perhaps he mistakenly believed that when he dreamed that Joan would go away with an army or with men-at-arms, uh, he thought that her role would be that of a, of a prostitute. So it is a fairly well-known story that he had said something along the lines of, to Joan's brothers, he said, I would want you to drown her if such a thing were to come to pass, and if you weren't able to do it drown your sister, I would do it myself. And and this was to, to prevent any disgrace, kind of disgrace to the family. Um, and there was also the, the fact that something else in her early life had happened, which was that she had been sued for apparently breaking a promise of marriage that Joan said she never made. She was, uh, you know, t taken to court for that and made her case and, and won her case. All of this made me think that, you know, perhaps Joan was not such a straightforward or, or submissive individual as, as some would like to think. But as for the the abuse, I wanted to really emphasize that how pervasive the, the war is, that the battles that happen aren't just on the field, so to speak, that they begin perhaps in one's home, and that to create a hero um, such as Joan, it, it takes an, an immense amount of pressure and it just, it doesn't happen overnight. And that's something that I've, that's a problem that I've always had, I, I suppose, with her traditional story, which is that it felt too sudden, it felt too linear, that one simply has um, visions and is told what to do. And so then where is the sense of agency? You're being visited by angels and, and saints and you're being assured in some ways of your destiny. Um, and that is something that I always had a problem with. Where is the personal impetus? Um, because I think this is something that I discussed at, at length with my editor as well, which is that, um, you know, she, she mentioned that very few people, and I suppose this might be a cynical thing to say, but not a lot of people do, are moved to do things um, until, until something happens, until things become personal, until our own lives are affected. And I feel with with um, Joan, her patience has reached its threshold and her tolerance for injustice has has absolutely reached its limit and it's become deeply personal. That, and that's for me, is the only way for me to explain um, how she's able to undertake the journey that she does. Yes, which is what gives the, which is what sort of feeds into the feminist mantle. I mean, I, mean, I sort of hesitate to say is she a feminist icon because feminist is such a now, concept well that now but a relatively now concept and you know given what given the time that she was living in it's it's almost incredible but i think all the things that you're saying especially about her taking agency is what gives the book its sort of contemporary feel because it, extraordinary as it is that such a young person should be able to lead armies 
it, it just she just has such a very contemporary feel. But the other thing you just mentioned along the way there, well, let's just spend a little bit of time on the feminist thing. Were you conscious of creating a modern day feminist icon? I, I may be putting words into your mouth and you may be thinking, oh, what is she talking about? What, what, what's your take on the feminist angle? Well, I, I think Joan is undoubtedly, as, as you said, I agree with that. I think she's undoubtedly viewed today as a feminist icon by a lot of people. Um, and, and do I see her as a feminist? Well, I, I guess I, I will try to answer that in, in two ways. I, I consider myself undoubtedly a, a feminist, and that identity is so ingrained in me. It's so in my blood and, and in my bones, so in my nature, that I think I have, I've probably written Joan as a feminist. She's my ideal woman. How could she not be? And and in fact, one of my favorite lines in, in the book is is that moment when she's talking to another character, I think it's with Lahire, who taunts her and, and he baits her about whether she is really a man or a woman, because he, in, in his narrow mind, I suppose, still can't wrap his head around the fact that she can do what she can do in battle, that she is such a natural leader of men. And, and she responds, and I'm paraphrasing here, she says, why would I be a man, it would not make me stronger. I am already strong. Yes. And I love I love that line. And and another scene I, I love, not to, you know, veer into narcissism, is that when she and Yolande and Yolande's daughter, the Dauphine, are, are standing together, love picturing that scene of these three very different women huddled together and the Dauphine's young daughter held between them and, and, and the Dauphine says, Next time you kill an Englishman, think of my daughter and June says, I will. And that is such a powerful moment to me. It's a, it's a terrible, absolutely terrible, but also beautiful moment. It's a bond of blood in a, in a way between women um, and who in some ways couldn't be more different just in terms of background and in terms of class and how they were raised. And But I, I don't, to answer your question another way, I don't think that Joan in the book necessarily would identify as, as a feminist because you're right, it, it is yeah. a more contemporary concept. I think she is simply doing what she thinks she she ought to do and what she has been pushed to do and if you wanted me to put my my small very tiny historian cap on i would say that i don't think historically joan was a feminist um i based on what i've read i think she thought she was wholly singular um she was she thought she was a very unique individual which of course she was and um i'll just relate this story that i came across um as I was was doing my research and my reading, there's a story about how she met another female prophet. Um, her name was Catherine de la Rochelle. And Catherine also claimed to see visions. And what happened is, in a way, quite comedic. Um, Joan wanted Catherine to prove that her visions were real. So she said that she would stay with Catherine at night when um, Catherine's visions came. And what happened was the first night Joan fell asleep. She couldn't stay up. She couldn't keep her eyes open. And, and then, you know, she, when she woke, she asked Catherine if the visions had come. And Catherine said, yes, but, you know, you were asleep and I couldn't wake you. So the vision just came and went and you missed it. And then the next day, Joan prepared and she, I think she slept in advance and they were able to stay up the whole night. And again, Catherine said the visions would come, but they didn't come. And Joan's conclusion from all this was that, and Joan, and she said as much, she said that Catherine should return home and resume her duties as a wife and mother, um, basically go, go back to being a, a homemaker. And, and to me, what is interesting 
about this is that um, I think Joan said in the trial records that she consulted her own visions about Catherine de la Rochelle and her saints. And so this would be Margaret and St. Margaret uh, and St. Catherine uh, dismissed Catherine de la Rochelle and said that, oh, that, you know, that's just a, a crazy person. And so I clearly from this record, I think it's, a, it's fairly apparent that Joan considered her own visions to be superior to that of another woman. Yes, who was yes, in her own way trying to support the, the, the cause for the French. Yes. She certainly wasn't shy about her attributes, um, though she does question herself at one point, and she does say, am I doing this for la gloire? Am I doing this for the glory? But, but she says all sorts of wonderful and wise things, but you've just said many things there, Catherine. I love it that you said I could picture the scene. And one of the things about your writing is that extraordinarily visual. Um, if anybody was brave enough to make this into a movie, you've got some incredibly rich, uh, intense scenes. The other thing that you say um, when she said, why would I want to be a man? I think she also said it would, she says a couple of things, but she says it would also give me hairs on my chest, but I don't need to pray <laughs> to be strong. I'm already strong. And I thought, yes, you go, girl. And the third thing you mentioned there is about your tiny little historian's cap which I've no doubt would have had a lira peep. Um, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. But <laughs> the little thing that hangs down on the back of a hood. Where you found all this information, I am absolutely in awe. But before you answer any of those or respond to any of those, I want to just come back to the dreadful father and the, the people who shaped her lives. She had this mother who was, all she did was pray and I think, uh, I think Joan says something about, you know, life of prayer is wasted and that her mother wore her piety like a new dress. And the lovely Catherine, you know, his, her divine, literally sister, wonderful Catherine. But there was somebody else in her life who perhaps may have been more of a catalyst for the way she became, the sort of woman she developed into. And that was her uncle, Uncle Durand, I, I suppose, um, a, a sort of mercurial character. But again, it, did he exist? Did you know of him? Well, he, he definitely he, he definitely existed, and I believe that um, in in history he was. Um, I mean, she, she called him uncle, but uh, I believe that he was um, her, her her mother's cousin's um, husband, um, something like that. And so, but in, in I think in history he was quite simply a farmer, and he's credited with um, with bringing Joan to um to Valcolaire, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and mm. to the audience of Robert de Baudricourt. And so I expanded and and changed his character a lot for the purpose of this book. I felt that um I needed a vehicle or or rather a vessel for someone who could bring stories to Joan, who could tell her of the outside world and who could expand her horizons even before she leaves the village. Um, and, you know, I think every character serves their own purpose. For instance, in the case of her father, I, I find it very interesting that um, her father is, is a leader, too. He's, he's by no means um, an incapable um, character. He's, he's very capable, and he possesses talents of his own. And in, and in real life and history, he did own, a, um, you know, many acres of land. I think it was around 40 acres of land. And he did um, allocate um, the, those p portions of land pretty well, uh, you know, for farming, for pasture, um, for allowing people to, to forage um, so that their pigs could grow plump. 
Um, and he was, and, and I think a, some kind of ambassador, um, to, to Volcolaire and he was not, he, so I, I saw these like parallels, um, in, in Joan in terms of, uh, her father's leadership. And I assumed he was quite elo eloquent in his own way. And, and also, so Joan's leadership, but I also wanted to demonstrate, um, how Joan deviates from genetics, if you will, from her inherited um, leadership traits and from, from any in, kind of inherited talent for leadership um, in that her father is, is a very brutal character, but then she does not become warped under his abuse. Rather, she, she doesn't veer from the straight and narrow. She grows into, into if anything, she grows into kindness. Yes, I mean, yes. She's, she's extremely moral. Like, uh, for the life of me, couldn't find it now, but there's a wonderful quote about, she says something to the effect of, you don't have to be, you don't have, to, you can be strong, but you don't have to be cruel. I can't remember exactly what it is, but her, her values and her wisdoms are infinitely quotable and very, very female, but at the same time androgynous. You know, there are lots of lessons here for how to be a good leader. But I just want to talk a little bit, if we may, about her faith, because we we know who her detractors were. We know that she had many enemies, certainly later on, she had, you know, her own father, who may have been very strong, but you know, goodness me, did he use his fist. But who were her inspirations? Were, were they purely... Um, were they purely faith-driven? St. Mar Margaret and St. Catherine were clearly very strong. But tell us a little bit about how her faith manifested, because she was at one with prayer and against prayer. Yes, I'm really glad you asked that, because I think it was super important and, and a paramount importance for me to try to tackle faith in a different way in this work. Otherwise, I, I really wouldn't see the point of writing yet another um, book on, on Joan of Arc. I wanted to make spirituality run throughout this this work in a way that that replicated my own experience with spirituality in in real life, and which is to say that most of us, I assume, don't experience visions. We don't see um, angels descend before us. We may not hear voices, um, divine voices, speak so directly to us or telling us what to do and telling us what our mission in life is. But I think a good deal of us may feel, as I, I know I feel, the presence of something greater that is guiding us through our lives and leading us on to our fate. And, and perhaps for me, that may have derived from my period of illness. And maybe that is where my motivation came from, which is that when I look back, I can't believe I actually sort of made it through and, and was able to rewrite this book from scratch at the time. And, and so for me, it's far more interesting than, than that what I've, what I've just said is far more interesting than simply receiving a vision or a series of visions or even being able to communicate with angels. I love the idea of, of God actually being very present in this book and yet being unseen. And so when things happen, so when things, let's say the stars align and let's say you meet your, I don't know, your, your romantic soulmate in life or you get your big break in your career or something like that, we can call it many things. We can call it a form of serendipity or a form of grace or the work of the divine, the work of God. And I wanted somehow to replicate that in the book. I wanted to show in my own way how God is always there. And in the depths of, you know, when you're despairing, you can give up on God, but God won't give up on you. Mm -hmm. And, and, and Joan, you know, I think Joan realizes this in the depths of her heart and she bargains with him. And I, I, for me, it's clear that she believes in him. It's just that her faith is complex. 
and she tells God what she wants. And in the end, not not you know to give anything away, but when she pledges to make her return, I believe God is very much there, listening to to every word she's saying, and he and he already knows. And in my opinion, any struggles that Joan has with faith, it just makes her a more interesting character. And and truth be told, and and I think this this is probably a somewhat controversial thing to say, but I don't I don't have a lot of patience with what would be described as simple faith. And I think faith can be strong without being simple. And I don't think faith, authentic faith, is simple. I don't think belief in God is straightforward or, in fact, should be so simple. And to question, to doubt, must go, in my opinion, hand in hand with faith, because life is complex. And and that's true of now as it, as it was of then. And we're met with challenges in life. And whether we personally experience such challenges or whether we hear about them, in the news or witness them ourselves, they are reality and human nature is complex too. And, and, and in fiction is, and in, in fiction, in fiction, if you really want to bring a character to life, it's my opinion that you have to try to capture the nuances, the inner struggle. You must, you must try to understand this was a living, breathing young woman. She was not a demigod or in some kind of immortal figure. She was human and she died and her death was not short. It was int actually intentionally prolonged, and this is historically true, to make her suffer. Um, she died in the worst possible way, and, and of the worst possible the way, they made the method of death worse because they wanted to make her suffering um, lengthy. And so you must un understand that when she saw the place at which she would be burned and at which she ultimately met her end, she actually started to weep. And when I read that, she I, I understood that, that what she wanted was to live. And I, and I have to admit that when I read that she had cried upon seeing the place where she would be burned, I, I did lose for the time all sympathy for not only the church as an institution, but also the simple and, in my opinion, rather romanticized version of her life. And so I don't particularly want to hear about, for instance, how historically her executioner felt guilt afterwards about killing someone so virtuous like seriously who, who cares about what he felt when she's already dead and i'm not very invested in stories about how you know a dove uh, a bird a dove bird like conveniently appeared at the moment of her death and and i'm not particularly interested in stories about how her heart wouldn't burn even when and the executioner said he tried to burn her heart and also her entrails and and regine pernude in in her um work says he tried to burn them with a combination of, I think it was sulfur, charcoal, and oil or, or something like that. So I, I see, I find those aspects of her life the least interesting. And, and, the, and the truth of the matter is a young woman has died. She has died at the hands of um, men, politi politically motivated, um, small-minded and, and small-minded men, petty men who, who wanted to, to um, promote themselves and who were, you know, very clear about their own political alliances. And I wondered, you know, what does this teach us? And what does this have to teach us about human nature? And why does her story still resonate? I think it is nearly, you know, 600 years after her death in 1431. I think those are the real questions. You know, it's funny you say that because right at the end of my notes, I put <clears throat> this book is like a study in human nature and behavior. So I absolutely hear you. But it seems to me like the journey of you writing this book would have been a, a, quite a test for your own faith and quite, um, you know, faith versus religion. A lot of questions for you that you have unpacked in the unfolding of this book. 
but I want to move us to a lighter, a lighter place. And you mentioned earlier that you almost wanted to open a file, that's not quite what you said, uh, on interesting anecdotes, because, you know, the book is filled with interesting little anecdotes. I mentioned there about uh, the Liri Peak, you know, which is the bit of the garment that uh, you wear on a, on a hood, but there are all sorts of wonderful words and wonderful food and the descriptions of the battle, which is hardly a light note, and the armour. And oh, my goodness me, did you have an interesting anecdote, an interesting uh, snippet file? Let, let's start. Let's start. On, I promised a lighter note. Let's start with the food, because the food is absolutely mouthwatering. We've got these little oubli biscuits. We've got um, all kinds of extraordinary sources. D did you did you spend some time on the food of the time? I did, and that was, um, I, I guess, more delightful, I suppose, uh, to, to research. Um, but I think it, it was also a, a challenge of how, and I think this is a, a general question that maybe, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming writers of, of historical fiction struggle with, which is how you incorporate what you learn and the facts of what you learn into what, what you write and to strike that balance um, between too too much like fact giving and too much exposition or historical exposition and, and actually telling the story. And, and so for me, I was rather glad that I was able to um, incorporate the, the oublies. And I, again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but um, the wafers um, and, and putting um, St. Michael on them, which I thought was, was another way of showing um, what I mentioned before, uh, which is, you know, the sign of divine grace or, or God's grace. And when she sees that, you know, we all, we all know, I think, um, that um, the Archangel Michael visited Joan. Um, and, and I wanted to incorporate that in a different way in the narrative, which is that what if she, she saw the image of him standing on Satan, the serpent? And what if she saw that stamped on the way for the gift the cinnamon um, flavor gift that the Dauphin gives her in, during their first meeting, and I thought that would that would be more meaningful than than any vision um, that I could necessarily describe. It, it certainly felt as if you had walked through the kitchens of these dark, greasy kitchens. Um, I, I could feel it. I could smell it. There were all sorts of wonderful things there, um, but I think we we need to spend a moment on war. This is hardly a lighter note, but that her fascination with armor starts from a very young age. Her, her learning of the craft, if you like, of battle, the art of, of war, she learns by watching other soldiers. I think there's an old knight who teaches her how to ride. It's, it's a strange and unusual thing for a girl to be so fascinated by all these things. I think at one point when she's at the Vocula Fair, she actually puts on a helmet and, and they laugh at her. But it seems that she had this um, a fascination. She was completely obsessed by things to do with war. And the way she fights in battle is extraordinary. Again, how much of that did you find? How much of that did you imbue into her through your own imagination? Well, I think I wanted to, to show the pervasiveness of, of war at the time. And again, I think it, it stems from my motivation of not wanting Joan to simply do a 180 and transform into this, this soldier overnight, which I don't think would be very realistic. Um, I wanted her to, 
sort of grow into it. And obviously there is this natural instinct that I, that I think she has. And I think, I believe I, I showed that. And it's, it's a good thing that you mentioned the fair because it's, it's an interesting thing that, you know, Catherine is drawn to, you know, certain items at, at the, or certain stalls at the fair, whether it's like textiles or whether it's um, jewelry. And um, Joan is drawn to something very different. Um, and I think that comes too from the stories that, her uncle tells her about the atrocities that have happened and are still happening um, in France. Um, and I wanted to in, instill um, into the narrative a sense of, of growth, of um, creating these threads, if you will, that sort of recur over and over again, and that hopefully the reader will eventually be able to tie together. For instance, um, you know, the, the very first scene um, of where uh, the boys of Domremy and the neighboring village and the boys from the neighboring village of Maxey ha would have these rock fights. I think the first scene of the book is a good example of that. And, and that is historically true, which is that um, they weren't just these playful scraps between um, neighbor, children from neighboring villages. Um, uh, Joan mentioned this in the trial that she would uh, witness boys returning home and they would be bruised and I think quite hurt or bloodied from these fights. Um, and I thought that was an interesting thread to sort of tie throughout the work, which is how, how, do, how do I create these threads that appear and then recur in the book, such as throwing of rocks or, you know, and, and also when Joan compares herself to being a rock in the hand of the Dauphin and she says, you have to use me, you have to, you know, throw me, you can't just keep me in your pocket and, you know, let you know, let this 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 uh, kingdom collapse, or you know, at the end when a child throws a rock at Joan after she is captured. I wanted these images to occur again and again, and even with Guillaume, um, you know, obviously Joan is the one to watch uh, young Guillaume die in the first scene, but then later um, at the Battle Pate, she holds the body of a different Guillaume, that is, an English Guillaume or William at the end of the Battle Pate. And that was also inspired by a real story, which I love because um, Joan did hold uh, the body or of, of an English soldier as he died. And I think that story carries a great deal of pathos and shows an enormous amount of compassion. So yes. I wanted these different um, aspects to manifest themselves throughout the work again and again. And the meaning obviously changes as, as, the, as the book progresses, hopefully. So interesting to hear you say that, Catherine, because I, I definitely picked up on some of the things, but certainly that thing of the sharp rocks and the little boy at the end who throws a sharp rock at her, and I won't give away what happens, but that was a real oof moment um, when she, she doesn't respond. She, as it were, turned the other cheek. I suppose reluctantly in closing, because there's much more I'd like to talk about, I'd just like to touch on war, because war is so prevalent for us at the moment, you know, and war remains war then, a uh, hundred years ago, you know, presently, and I suppose war is something that will always be with us. And you talk about the petty men, and we, we haven't even touched very much on the Dauphin, who is such an interesting character in himself, in all his sort of slenderness. And there's a wonderful line where your style of description, I absolutely love. I think you talk about him being in a steeple and a red steeple and out of which this pale moon of a face juts. It was just such an incredibly good description. But war itself, is it something, because she was passionate about war, and for somebody who was had such kindness and such understanding and such wisdom, one wanted to weep for her that she 
had to use war as a tool. Did you feel, did you reflect a lot on what the meaning of war then and now as you were writing? I think you have pointed out um, astutely the, the irony of war in Joan's life, which is that I, I never wanted her to possess this. I don't want her to um, possess these like warmongering, you know, attributes or this kind of bloodlust, but it is her talent. And, and she does question that um, at, at one point, especially when she says that could this possibly be a divine talent or you know where does this come from could this actually even be demonic she she says something like i can i can imagine how god would inspire poets and artists and you know musicians or something like that but um but where does this come from this this capacity for for killing and i don't think i'm i'm condoning war but i i think it is you know in the circumstances a, a necessity and obviously it, it resonates today, um, especially when you come across, you know, articles of women taking up arms for Ukraine. And I remember um, coming across this article of this, this woman who was already, I believe, middle-aged and, and she, she, she wasn't a soldier by training. I think she was um, like a market researcher or something like that. Um, she was, you know, she was educated and, and her profession was something in, in, in something completely apart and separate from war. But, um, you know, there was this photograph of her holding like this huge weapon, and I think it was some type of rifle. And she said that she would be compelled to use it if, if necessary. And, and so I, I see these women, I suppose, and I see women who take up placards to, or and, and banners, if you will, um, to, to protest, um, you know, certain causes in the United States. Um, I see all of these women as descendants in a way of, of Joan of Arc. And, um, and it, it, so I feel it is an incredibly relevant story in, in that sense. There are different kinds of, of war. Um, you know, even the trial itself can be seen. The trial of Joan of Arc can be seen as a battle of a different kind, a battle of wits, a battle of endurance. And, you know, going back to the subject of armor, I think that the, perhaps one of the, the real narratives of the story is how this child who is abused and and hurt and and brutalized and she has no means of really protecting herself and then she she goes to battle she wears armor and then she and in the end she's captured and she's she it's almost like a full circle ending in a way to me but then i thought about how in the end she doesn't need armor anymore and she doesn't because she's so strong within herself it's that she doesn't necessarily need to wield a sword anymore. And we all know her end, but it's an end with, with dignity. Um, and so I think that that is a story that, that very much resonates today. And I hope yeah. it will prove inspiring for, for female readers in particular. It certainly will. And I must tell you, Catherine, here in South Africa, every year we have Women's Day, which is on August the 9th. It was a day in which 20,000 women marched to the Union building, so demanding peace and dignity. And the line is, you strike the woman, you strike the rock. In other words, we used to say, the minute you strike the woman, that's it. We're not going any further. So this book certainly struck a note. But very, very lastly, I have to say, Catherine, you mentioned something there about exposition, not wanting to uh, tell but show. You, you were very careful about releasing information without spelling it out. Um, not least in the case of, case of what happened to Catherine, which again speaks to women's plight now. 
you never actually say what happened, but we know what happened. I think you were very careful to release your information in a very, um, in a way, very often through the thoughts, through memories, through things that were unsaid rather than said. So I just want to congratulate you on your style of writing. And also, also in the language and the visuals, I just have to close with the language and the visuals because the language you found all sorts of words. I spent my whole time going back to the dictionary or Googling different words to find out what they were. You must have been awash with all this information and the visuals. Did you, where did you get your visuals? Did you, did you spend a lot of time looking at photographs? Did you travel? Did you go to France or were you just in your home using the internet? Oh, I was, well, I was just at, at home and, um, it was, it was, uh, it was a book, as I've mentioned, written very much on, on a budget and everything was sort of imagined from not only my couch, but also in this broken office chair, um, written in a very confined closet with no windows. And it was very hot in the summer and there would be no air in the space that I worked in. So, so, but I think that, you know, the truth of the matter is, and I think, you know, Hilary Mantel, um, might have said this um, in, in the past. She said something like, it, once you create a, a world well enough, and I'm totally paraphrasing, and, I'm, and I apologize for butchering what she might have originally said. She said, you, you should be able to walk through the, the rooms, breathe in the air, and you should know like every detail of the rooms that you, that you walk through. And in her case, it was the, the Tudor rooms, you know, in, in, in the Wolf Hall trilogy. But in, in my case, I think once you do sufficient research, the world sort of comes alive on its own. And it's, and it's really quite remarkable how, how that happens. And you can see the fields and you can see, and it's almost like stepping into Joan's body. And when she looks over, you know, the hills and valleys, you're looking at it like through her eyes. And, and that's the only way I can describe it. And of course, um, when you, when you go to court, when the book eventually moves to court, um, the material culture of the world becomes so so very alive because there's simply so much more to describe, um, and and I think it's just a matter of, of working that that all those objects, um, you know, the different such as like you know, the relics, the garments, um, the appearances of characters in, into the narrative, and making that the world feel real. It's it's just a world building for for the reader to engage well, with. I can assure you I was fully engaged. I was right in that world. I was heartbroken when I came to the end. So uh, just last, very last question. Where where do you go to from here? How do you follow Joan of Arc? I mean, to be honest, I've been in a kind of purgatorial state um, in, in terms of, um, I, I suppose it's funny. I, I felt like a, a lion or a lioness while writing the book. And now, like in the, in the course of the publication process, a lot of people on my team would tell you that I was more of a cowering kitten. I was, <laughs> I was very afraid of, of reviews and, and of people's reactions and probably a little paranoid about all those things. And, but, you know, thankfully it's been, I think around you know, three months since the initial, um, you know, U S publication. Um, and so I, things have, have calmed down a bit and uh, now I'm trying to think ahead to the next work and trying to steal myself for that because there will be another, yet another challenge, yet another tall order. 
Catherine J. Chen, thank you very much. The book is called Simply Joan, and it's unmistakable. Its cover is absolutely exquisite. Published by Hodder and Thornton, but I think we have Jonathan Ball to thank for this page cast. And uh, Catherine, I wish you every success with the next book, and I hope you don't get sick along the line because you have got so much to offer the literary world. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nancy. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you.